0: While politicians and diplomats navigated a shift in relationship between the U.S. and South Africa during apartheid, another channel fostered a unique cultural connection between the two countries. And this one was much more musical in nature.
1: Urban African musicians in and around Johannesburg, they were listening to Atlantic records. They were listening to Motown. Others were listening and very uh, deeply tied in with jazz Others were listening to gospel music, etc. So there was a huge influx and acute attention that was paid to popular music coming out of the United States.
0: Louise Mainkeys grew up in South Africa during the 1970s and 1980s. Her family lived in Pretoria, the administrative capital of the country outside of Johannesburg. Growing up, she learned to play classical music on the violin but she says a range of pop music swirled around her.
1: There was lots of other music going on around me, and both on the radio, in the streets, in the backyards, in the suburbs, and that was uh, the most magnificent, compelling African popular music.
0: Louise has spent her career as an ethnomusicologist, studying various kinds of South African music. She's also researched links between South African and American music. She says popular American music could often be heard over the radio. But the radio was a complicated device in apartheid South Africa. Embedded in its frequency was something more conniving than just a broadcast of the latest hits.
1: Well, radio has been absolutely crucial to the sort of structuring of apartheid. That uh, radio during apartheid was state-owned, state-regulated. Music was censored. Radio stations were divided on the basis of language. You know, it was both a tool for for the apartheid state and also a source of great pleasure for a lot of South Africans who heard music through the radio.
0: So the state was trying to use radio to uh, divide people, segment various uh, geographic and racial other identities. Did people try to circumvent that with music?
1: Yes, not necessarily deliberately so. The style such as bakanga, for instance, which was this kind of soul-inflected garage band style. This was a studio-produced sound. These were musicians who were completely using the radio despite the fact that it was state-owned apartheid radio. For some listeners particularly later in the uh, liberation struggle. But Kanga musicians were criticized for being sellouts because they didn't sing politically explicit lyrics and because they were so integrated into state radio. But yet one has got to look back and say, well, actually these musicians were doing something different. These musicians were singing about everyday life in many ways and singing about everyday life, they were therefore singing about everyday struggle. And they were looking to sounds across the ocean. They were integrating and making their own sounds from uh, Seoul and Motown and Atlantic Records, etc., and making it their own. And that was an incredibly interesting and important move. That is to say, these were musicians who were living in um, townships, that is in urban areas around the cities, and who thought of themselves as urban residents, as South African citizens, as people of the world, as modern cosmopolitans connected into international ideas. To present all that in sound without saying so necessarily explicitly is also to say we are not rural South Africans. We are not South Africans who sing only in one language or speak only in one language. We are urban, modern people, and that was really counter to what the apartheid state was trying to do, right? So this is at a time when African South Africans are being evicted, and on the basis of some phony idea of what constitutes an ethnic group and who fits into which ethnic group, they are being designated to different so-called homelands in South Africa. So to sing with a kind of soul-inflected sound, to sing that black is beautiful in a South African way was, in fact, to do a lot of political work at the same time.
0: Now, while many South African musicians perform within the confines of the state-owned system, Louise says some big-name artists chose to resist apartheid and endured the consequences.
1: During the apartheid era, there were a lot of musicians who were either exiled or chose self-imposed exile, who are absolutely crucial to the exposure of South African culture and with that culture as a kind of political voice internationally. These are musicians like Abdullah Ibrahim, Hugh Masakela, Miriam Makeba and others. And the key kind of places that these musicians went to were London or New York. And in terms of the U.S. connection there, there were American musicians who were crucial to enabling these South African figures to integrating into a U.S. musical life. People like Harry Belafonte and Duke Ellington, for instance.
0: And, you know, I know Humesquilla had big hits. Did that matter in this effort? Was that kind of a way of validating South African musicians, or did it seem a diversion, or how would you describe it?
1: I think it was absolutely crucial to validating South African music and making an international world aware of South African music and of South African music as a thoroughly modern music. You know, I mean, Hugh Masakela's 1968 hit Grazing in the Grass, which was kind of an Afrofusion piece, was very exciting for South Africans.
0: I still turn it up today, too, (laughs) you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it really.
1: Yeah. And that set of musicians kind of set the stage for later discussions about South African music or later exposure of South African music.
0: And in the mid-1980s, in the wake of musicians like Hugh Masakela's success, South African music gained exposure from a global audience thanks to one album in particular, Paul Simon's Graceland. The similar work features a vibrant mix of pop, rock and South African styles. During its recording, Paul Simon collaborated with several South African bands, like the Boyo Boys and Ladysmith Black Mambazo. It was a big commercial success and won Album of the Year at the Grammys in 1987. But Graceland's recording and release was engulfed in the political turmoil of the era. The album came out in 1986, while American artists were wrapped up in a cultural boycott of South Africa implemented by the United Nations.
1: Paul Simon's entry into South Africa was really complex for a lot of people. You know, there were a lot of people who were intrigued and interested in the creative experimentation.
0: You know, it was a big deal in the States. Uh, What was its reception in South Africa?
1: It had a most fascinating reception. It was greatly loved by many South Africans. And there were also South Africans who boycotted it. There were South Africans who felt that there was a sellout
0: record. What have been the consequences on South African music of that album? I mean, you know, in some ways it's kind of like English musicians taking African-American music, you know, it's redoing it and, and giving it back to Americans. Here are cases of Americans taking South African music and kind of remixing it and, and giving it back. Did it have consequence on the, the shape of South African music?
1: It had some very immediate consequences of, you know, such a beautifully produced album, There were musicians, of course, who imitated the sounds. There were Istatamia choirs like Ladysmith Black Mambazo, other choirs like Ladysmith Black Mambazo who began singing more closer to the sound of Black Mambazo than perhaps they had been before. So they were the sort of typical kinds of influence of a great album where all sorts of musicians were inspired by the sound and took up some of the sound into their work. Another thing I think the Graceland album did was bring attention to the well-known fact in South Africa of uh, the melodic bass and of the emphasis of the bass in South African music. And that was largely because uh, Paul Simon worked with this magnificent bass player, Bagiti Kumalo. His bass lines, I think, just really brought attention to bass lines of a lot of South African music and the way they very often kind of the melodic lead. So there were lots of kind of musical influences were there political influences? In the long run, I think that all passes, and what remains is the sound.
0: So, here in the nineteen eighties, there was a lot of concern in the United States about boycotting South Africa, including a cultural boycott, and a lot of uh, you know anguish about you know what was the the right thing to do. What was it like at the other end of that? What what effect did the cultural boycott have in South Africa?
1: the cultural boycott was important because of the way that it raised debate about what constituted resistant culture. But of course, culture can never be contained. However sophisticated a cultural policy might be, you're never able to actually contain and constrain creativity in cultural production. What was more constrained was the circulation of musicians themselves.
0: And, And so how would South African musicians be affected by this? Did it kind of uh, limit their opportunities as well?
1: It wasn't designed to do so, but to an extent it did. It perhaps enabled musicians who were explicitly political in their message. But there's so much music which, while not explicitly political, still did important work, even if it was sort of implicated in apartheid structures, such as, for example, the radio. It still did important work expressing South Africans' points of view and enabling them.
0: Louise Mankies is an Associate Professor of Music at Duke University.